Hello, and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we study an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see how it holds up all on its own. I'm one of your hosts, Corey. And I'm your other host, Liam. And this week, we have a lot of very exciting things happening on the show. First of all, we're talking about cats again. Woo! Okay, I'm just kidding. We're not talking about cats again, but... You've heard his voice. We have a very special guest. We have our good friend Mitch on the show today. Wow, such a privilege. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, this is a podcast that's jump-started a lot of people's careers, so you're lucky to be here. Yeah, I know. Just because our good friend Mitch is here, we've decided to do a movie that is a little in his wheelhouse. It's something that he's pretty excited about. We're pretty excited about it, too. It is the 1982 film Cat People, which is a reinterpretation more than a remake of the 1942 film of the same name. And it was directed by Paul Schrader, who will be known for, you know, taxi driver and American gigolo and first reformed and all kinds of stuff. He's, he's a really prolific, really incredible filmmaker. It is written by Alan Ormsby based on a story by DeWitt Bodine which is Great an incredible name. fucking name, who, um, <laughs> who did uh, the original and also Curse of the Cat People. Um, Terrible movie. It is, it has a... Wait, is Curse of the Cat People a sequel to the original? Yeah. yeah. They made another one. They did. Oh, why the hell aren't we doing that one? <laughs> because, I don't know, we could have. I didn't think, I didn't know if you wanted to. Fair enough, man. We well, have, maybe next time. I don't know what your, like, what your preference is in terms of what decade we're in, but we've done a lot of 80s movies. Yeah. Um, so, wait, Curse of the Cat People is an 80s movie? No, no it's, it's a 40s movie. 1944. Yeah. Oh, I see, I see. So you were trying to keep me comfortable with the 80s movie. Yeah, potentially. I don't want to box nice. you in, though. Nobody can put baby oh, in a corner. <laughs> um, real quick, I'm gonna, I want to introduce something that we don't normally do, uh, which is the music is by Giorgio Moroder, and the theme song is by David Bowie. And folks, it's so fucking good. We want to talk about the music a lot. I have it on my iPod. It's a classic. And another thing we don't normally do before I get to the cast is um, one of the executive producers is Jerry Bruckheimer, who you may know for, among other reasons, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Needless to say, this is nothing like that. Looks like our boy Jerry's branching out a little bit. Good for Jerry. Everybody, please clap for Jerry. Yay. Good job, Jerry. Um, do you know who the DOP was, uh, though? John Bradley? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. He did the big chill. No fucking way. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Folks, I love the movie, The Big Chill. This is very (laughs) exciting. Um, In case you haven't noticed, Mitch is going to be our resident film history encyclopedia, so strap in. Um, Real quick, before we get into any of that, the cast. We got Mm -hmm. four main folks we're dealing with here that I'm going to shout out. We've got Nastasia Kinski as Irina. We've got Malcolm McDowell as Paul. We've got John Hurd as Oliver, and we have Annette O'Toole as Alice. That's pretty much everybody you have to worry about in terms of the core plot. So normally this is, well, first actually, Liam, I want to ask, did you have any familiarity with Cat People, either the 40s movie or this movie before we pitched it to you? You know, I really thought I did. Um, I thought that I had seen this movie before, the 80s one. Um, in fact, I can remember sitting next to Mitch in a class, and he <laughs> he pulled up the list of movies that uh, that he had just watched. You know, he keeps a list of all the movies he had seen, and Cat People was like the most recent one from the 80s. And um, I said, oh yeah, I love that movie. Um, 
And I'm, I realized as we got closer to watching this and you guys were talking about it a bit more, the, the images weren't coming to my mind um, as I was hearing you guys speak. Like the, the memories weren't lining up. And upon watching this, it turns out I haven't seen it at all. So I have no idea what I was thinking of. I was convinced that I saw this on Scream Channel, which uh, was a channel on Canadian TV in like the early 2000s, and they played a lot of um, a lot of 80s stuff. And and I really thought I had seen this there, and I don't know what I was thinking of. I can. There's this woman in the forest, and I really and wish you cat, could remember and that. She was. I but. No, I, I hadn't seen this before, so uh, there's a movie that I really like that played on Scream 15 years ago, and I don't know what it was, so this was new for me. Well, the the mission statement of our podcast has just become track down whatever that movie was and watch it, but before, That's right, yeah. before I toss it over to Mitch, um, who's got some stuff planned for us, I uh, <laughs> I first saw this movie with him because we used to live together, and uh, I think you just threw it on the TV in the living room. And I just walked into the room. And as I did with so many. As you did with like Casino and that old Phantom of the Opera and all kinds of shit. Oh, everything, yeah. <laughs> and um, watched it there. It blew my mind. I thought it was awesome. Recently, um, the Criterion Channel did a featurette on um, Jacques Tournier and Val Luton. And um, that's where I saw the 1942 Cat People. Um, I opted to not watch Curse of the Cat People because, as you just heard, um, it's apparently not very good. Um, so, well, some people love it. I, I hate it. I can't stand it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's like always a sensibilities thing. But with that said, um, you know, our boy Mitch here, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a TCM guy. You know, he's he's pretty up and up on his film history, and um, I believe he's going to do a bit of a a bit of a Benny Mank for us, a Ben Mankiewicz spiel here. Oh, and, uh, I wish I could. If you could please, you know, get us into the feel of cat people and give us a sense of what that 40s film's like, what this 80s one is like before we dive into discussing it. Right. So we've we've been talking about cat people this whole time, but and it's such an aloof time, people. Now, this is between the two films, but I think it's fair to just say like a, you know, broad strokes. It's a psychosexual drama sort of thriller ancient curse that whenever they become stimulated or into a large black leopard and have to kill before they can become human again. And romance film, sort of horror film built around that subject. Um, so when they remade this movie in the eighties, one of like the most common criticism, like, yeah, but like, have you seen the original? Because like so many people prefer the original. Um, and I can understand why uh, it's got a 73 minute runtime breeze. It's, it, it goes by so quickly. There's not a single, uh, line of dialogue or anything that's that's excessive. It has very little fat, and that's uh, Val Luton, who was the producer of, of, of the original Cat People. Uh, he got a bunch of great directors together in in the early '40s. He picked up uh, most significantly uh, Jacques Tournier, who was uh, 1941. Who was a a um, they were from France and they moved to America. When Jacques was 10 years old in 1914, they were fleeing from the war. His father was a very eminent film director, and he made over 90 films, like from like the early teens to the... He was working in France, uh, making movies at the same time his son was working at RKO mm. for Val Luton. Uh, Luton was like one of those directors that is kind of like, he's like a page fault movies. Uh, Criterion, you know, just put something out 
put out a collection of his movies. He was born in Yalta in 1904. He was one of those great literate, like a, a certain style. There's a quote from Roger Corman that's, if you want to have a really good B-movie director, he has to have like the, I'm paraphrasing, the like the stylistic intentions of Visconti or Pasolini, and you got to make him direct Death Race or something. And that's, <laughs> that's like the, the secret sauce to was certainly that by the time he was 20 he had already written like nine swashbuckler novels uh and that's like how he like pirate novels money. yeah yeah that's how he made his money so he then he went into the film industry but uh you know a light that burns twice as bright you know doesn't long so he died in the 50s like in his 50s but there was a couple of string of great movies in the 40s that he made uh, with Jacques Tourneur, really revolutionized the B-movie game. I mean, and these movies are relevant because Paul Schrader is a really cine literate director, right? And mm -hmm. so the remake is off from all of these old 40s films. They they build so much and they add so much. And he borrows like a lot of the different plot tropes to kind of expand on um, the movie. And I mean, significantly like The Leopard Man or I Walked with the Zombie. And when he was making I Walked with the Zombie, around and he was very depressed he didn't he couldn't quite figure out what the next movie was going to be i walked with a zombie right mm -hmm. and then he said you know they're never going to recognize it but i walked with a zombie is going to be like jane eyre and the west indies and that was sort of his literate style and then he made out of the past which is like the greatest film noir of all time the ghost ship the seventh victim of course curse of the cat people which sucks and he made some <laughs> <laughs> why does Boris it suck Carla. can i can I like indulge um, a little bit? Why does Curse oh, of the Cat absolutely. People suck? It's, it's, like, there's no cat people. It's just like this old grandma <laughs> who's, who's the evil lady, and but then it's Mitch, just like about like it's these about kids. the curse of the cat people, not yeah. the cat people itself. They did that one already. It's done. no, no, it's it's dumb. But <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like he was kind of like pivotal Luton to the to the success of RKO's B unit and their A unit, which had been bankrupt by Orson Welles making Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons. They actually reused the staircase and cat people from that movie. And eventually RKO would be purchased by Howard Hughes in the late forties as like the aviation tycoon and he drove it into the ground. And uh yeah, so Luton and his like and his cinematic universe that he kind of made was like essential to like B movies in general, but also to the strength of RKO. He was like the only guy keeping the lights on, really doing so well. But uh, yeah, that's sort of my spiel. But all these are older movies can be seen like all throughout the original Cat People, so I highly seize them because um, if if you because a they're like great movies, they're only like seventy minutes long, and uh, they're like great pieces of fiction and and B movies, so. Yeah. absolutely give us movies a go before we dive in i'm gonna i'm gonna part the curtain here a little bit folks if you're hearing a word drop out periodically from mitch nothing i can do about it we're trying to fix it please be kind but what i want to get into is i don't think our show has ever had quite as much class and cinematic knowledge as it has had just now so thank you for your delightful spiel um okay and I think it's Thank worth. No, it was great. You're, you're. Yeah, yeah, it was really great. They should great, cast yeah. you in that um, movie about Ben Mankiewicz's dad instead of Gary Oldman. They should. You'll fit right yeah. in. Yeah, he was on like Nixon's bad list. Anyway, <laughs> we could talk about Nixon's bad list all night, probably, if we wanted to. But we could. Um, one thing I want to talk about before we talk about Cat People is Paul Schrader, because Paul Schrader, you know, I say this a lot. Leaves gonna laugh at me. Needs no introduction. Um, that may as well be my catchphrase on this show. But, yeah, just um, say that at the end of every episode. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Truly, this needs no introduction, and we're done. But um, 
I, I kind of want to get a sense from Liam first. Did you have a ton of familiarity with any of Paul Schrader's work before Cat People? Um, either as a writer or a director, because, you know, dude got around. Yeah, I've seen uh, Taxi Driver. Um, I've wanted to see First Reformed since that one came out. I haven't oh, seen that one. But, but when I when I think of Paul Schrader, that's actually the, that's the movie I think about. Because, um, you know, that's the one that came out when I was following movies. And so I heard his name a lot involved with that one. So I would love to see that movie at some point. And uh, I haven't seen anything else he's directed. He may have written something else that I... Uh, yeah, that I have seen, and and I've seen him in interviews. Um, I've read some of his interviews where like uh, he says like First Reformed is like the the best movie of all year. Like it's at the top of his top ten, and I think that's awesome. I uh, I love filmmakers who feel that way. I think it's uh, I think the movie that you make like if it came out the way you wanted it to, it should be your favorite movie of that year. So I, I like his uh, personality from what I've seen. I like that he's kind of. Uh, just confident and um whimsical and, and doesn't really doesn't really give a fuck yeah totally and um you know my introduction my ultimately my introduction to paul strader was kind of through mitch um because you always kind of had something on or something to talk about and um i had a couple blind spots in my like history of film at that point things like taxi driver that i wasn't familiar with so i remember coming in and you watching cat people i remember american gigolo being on i know you watch hardcore Hard, yeah. so a lot of my familiarity with his like oove especially as a director came from that um i'd be remiss if we didn't talk about mishima a life in four chapters which Brilliant is movie. one of the best movies i've ever seen and i highly highly recommend that um yeah. people go check that out because it's just such an astonishing like visual achievement even beyond like the narrative flexibility of that movie um yeah they have a little nod there is a nod like, to it know. yeah and, we'll and, cat people. and it's the same dop as well like the they he used the same guy yeah but, and um, um but aside from that i you know i knew that schrader had written a book on like ozu and some other like transcendental style i haven't read it but um that was something kicking around in my mind because this feels like you were saying it's it's got like a stylistic um or like characteristic of those pulpier like 40s b movies far more than definitely. it speaks to me in the terms of ozu but i definitely think you can see like echoes of cat people in his later movies for sure uh, oh absolutely um, yeah well, this, at least like the visual like flair yeah I mean, he was such a stylish director in the late 70s and early 80s it was, well and it's yeah. also catching that wave of the the prototypical 70s 80s um like erotic thriller so it's got definitely. that like neo-noir sensibility to it that will definitely yeah, get into and body horror too right yeah and a lot of like in these sort of 40s films are like the original body horror the original sort of grotesque being yeah like this the thing in yeah. videodrome i'll have a very similar bent in terms of like oh, yeah. just showing a body get fucked up in a yeah. way that is very unpleasant <laughs> like um but yeah. before we get into cat people which i promise we'll do I want to give you a place to wax poetic about Paul Schrader for a little bit from me. Yeah, go for it. Oh my God. I love Paul Schrader's movies. I mean, <laughs> like it's, he kind of like, he kind of started in like the, like the, to him, one of the, the fine makers of all time. But I mean, he and his brother kind of like broke into screenwriting. I think in the seventies, when he, when he made Yakuza, like he wrote the, the screenplay and that's mm -hmm. like a phenomenal movie. And, and it was the time, like the most sought out, 
expensive script to be purchased in Hollywood in like the early seventies. Everybody wanted it for some reason. And that movie like absolutely kicks ass. And then he made like a bunch of gritty sort of um, like blue collar gritty movies and came on the heels like in like the Hollywood Renaissance, like around the same time as Spielberg. And he was friends with De Palma and uh, Shady. Yeah, I think you can Taxi feel driver. De Palma in Cat People a lot. Oh, definitely. Can. There's so many. There's so many shades of it. And and yeah, American Gigolo I think has to be one of the most 80s as well, and if not the most stylish film of the 80s. Next to the like, Cat People is very stylish too. But um, again, Giorgio Moroder and uh, and Schrader first collaborated as well. Like, I think the year before or a few years before. American Gigolo was 80. Yeah, and then this was 82. Two years before, yeah, but yeah, hell of a movie. Uh, anyway, I just, I just love his, I love his style, and I love his like sort of pulpy roots, and I think kind of like a love letter to like his inspirations, and I think he he had like the same inspirations as a lot of these, as a lot of his contemporaries who loved uh, like the '40s sort of matinee movies or like the the '40s horror movies, or you know, he he was sort of drawing from that same sort of wealth and 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 love. Yeah, and it's so funny to see and that. When- come through just because i don't know when i picture paul schrader or his like filmography in my mind that's just not where my mind goes so it's interesting wow. knowing that like that's where the attachment still yeah. is or the inspiration I mean, he's, still he's is. all over the place though he's, he's all over the place yeah, so it's, it's hard to pin it. down he focus i think has to be one of the finest biopics ever made that's a that autofocus is just a tremendous it's from the 90s i think that one i'm not but familiar with i really recommend it at the end um, of this conversation, you're going to give us a syllabus to go home with. Oh, I've got one. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too bogged down in um, Paul Schrader, which I mean, we're going to anyway, because we're talking about his movie, but I want to open the floor to talk about cat people more specifically and more in depth. Um, we kind of talked about the plot already um, a little bit. The plot is very similar between the two movies it's not the exact same there's slight differences but um nothing significant i think i don't know the biggest like plot difference i can think of is is uh oliver's job being at the zoo that's like it's kind of it kind of makes me laugh (laughs) but it works so well like i feel like it contextualizes the story a lot better by having everything orbit around like a fucking zoo because it feels on the nose but at the same time it's totally not like it just works um, yeah, but I think it's fair for our listeners to kind of give like a brief rundown on like what what the yeah that's what I was gonna do in a second for ah, sure. Okay, cool. That's all good. So um, as we mentioned earlier, so we have um, we have Irena Gallier, and she is going to New Orleans, and she is going to be meeting up with her brother, um, her estranged brother Paul. We get the sense that Paul, played by Malcolm McDowell, um, we get the sense that they have been. Um, in and out of uh, foster care and orphaned and had a difficult life. But we also come to understand that their parents were part of like a circus and trained like big cats and also apparently juggled and sang songs enough that they can then recite one at one point. Um, And all of this is being presented to us after an intro, which sets up with an awesome, awesome intro song. Um, Oh yeah. This very like mystical you're almost not even clear if it's real like desert cult that exists and there's this tree 
Um, and everything's just like this hazy orange and there's like bones and stuff and there's just leopards and panthers everywhere. And um, you get a sense that there is sort of an intimate relationship between these people and these animals and you're trying to sort of orient yourself with how Irina and Paul sort of factor into that. Paul is giving off some weird vibes. He's very like touchy. Malcolm McDowell plays it in a very like quietly intimidating way for me. But um, she starts sort of working her way around New Orleans in this new situation where um, Paul has given her this like weird family information to sort of grapple with about their relationship with leopards. And he's also like vanished for a couple days. And in the meantime, um, we have Oliver and Alice who work at the New Orleans Zoo and they're called in to handle... Um, a fucking leopard in a motel that mauled a hooker um, in the in the parlance of the movie. And, it's a great uh, sequence. It's a great introduction to these characters. They have a really cool sort of fun dynamic between them. I think what works... I, I need to focus on the plot here. We're going to get into the movie in a sec, folks. I promise. Um, and we come to understand that that leopard is in fact Paul, um, which is quite a jarring realization and as mitch mentioned earlier sort of the reality of the situation is that there was this sort of mythic ancestral cult of people that Irina and paul descend from that is an incestuous cult that is that way because if these people have sex with anybody outside of their group they turn into a giant leopard and they cannot turn back until they have killed somebody. And I know for anybody who maybe didn't watch the movie, or even if you did, you're thinking that's an outrageous, bullshit, ridiculous uh, concept for a movie. And in a lot of ways it is. But I think that this movie keeps it grounded pretty well. And then a lot of the um, push for the narrative later on is Irina, or Irena is I think the actual pronunciation, so sorry, but um, is a lot of grappling with whether or not that's true, how to take these new influences her, in her life at face value, grappling with things that she's always kind of known because we see moments earlier on where she's able to leap up a wall like a cat with no good reason and um, trying to figure out how she will fit into this new set of circumstances with Oliver and with Alice and whether or not she's going to kind of give into, um, I guess we could call it the curse of the cat people if we wanted or... Yeah. Um, you know, try to rein that in. And in a lot of ways that goes into what Schrader talked about when he talked about the movie per Wikipedia quote, he's more concerned with uh, the erotic and horror aspects and uh, describe the film being more mythical than realistic. And it's got a very strong sense of like grappling with the nature of desire and sexual desire. And when those things, um, come into conflict with um either other people around you or just generalized norms or the ways in which you can grapple with that and how people grapple with like the appetite that kind of comes along with that i feel like there's a lot of allusions to eating that are sort of making a one-to-one between like actually eating and like you know metaphorically (laughs) anyway now seems like as good a time as any to ask liam because this is your first time watching it what did you think about cat people Hey, I uh, I liked this one. I um I wish I liked it more. 
And I'm thinking that uh, the reason I didn't, um, if I had to guess, is just that I'm so unfamiliar with a lot of the stuff Mitch was talking about at the beginning there. Um, a lot of Paul Schrader's uh, influences and inspirations, and I'm unfamiliar with the original movie and um, B-movies pre-1980s. And this is just, uh, it's it's... You know, Corey, you said that we're sticking to 1980s because we've done a lot of those and I've seen a lot of those. And I have, but this is a very different 1980s type of movie, you know. Mm -hmm. um, once we got to the, the body horror aspects is when I started to feel um, like I was getting my footing and I felt like I was having, like I was, uh, having a bit more fun and, and I was a bit more uh, at ease with what was going on. But the erotic horror stuff and just... Uh, the the way this movie deals with his ma with its main premise it was it was just a lot more somber and serious than um than my sensibilities sort of uh allow me to really enjoy it was um i i would have liked if the movie had been well i i would have liked the movie more on this first watch if it had been a bit more ludicrous you know when you when you read that premise it sounds so crazy and and like mm -hmm. it's so much fun and um i had heard you and mitch Corey, talking yeah. about this for 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 years you know and you're talking about how crazy this movie is that it's like it's cats and they're people and they're having <laughs> sex with each other and it makes them kill each other and like that sounds so cool and wild and this actually i didn't think it was that wild of a movie um it was actually pretty uh I thought it was kind of melodramatic and, and bordered on cheesy yeah. at some it's points. It's yeah, it is. It is a bit self-serious. And like this, um, the seriousness helps it a lot because I don't think in the hands of Paul Schrader, at least I would want it to try to be any more heightened than it already is. But mm -hmm. I can understand like with where your sensibilities are coming from, just why it wouldn't land because it's just not stylistically what you're looking for. Yeah, like the original, the original is kind of also very self-serious, like in its Freudian trope. I'm like, it's a very Freudian movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's it, like the original is super, like it's super. I, that's why it was partially kind of successful because, like, on the surface, it's like, what are you, these cats? And but, but it, that's sort of like You're telling part me of this its, woman's a cat. That's part of its, oh yeah, part of its sort of success. But I can see what you may think that it's like overwritten in some areas for sure. Uh, that's sort of one thing that I noticed maybe seeing it again. I was like, wow. Like, And also another thing that, I don't know, this is, but have any of you seen like the Nightman Cometh episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? No, that is a weirdly specific <laughs> no, reference for you to make. I'd love if you told us about it. Please. I love hearing about this show. Paul's performance right, reminds me just of the Nightman in that episode. But, yeah, I don't is know. that a I'm good gonna... thing or a bad thing? Uh, no, it's kind of ridiculous. Malcolm McDowell is hamming it a little bit. Oh, Not yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a little bit. And I Definitely. think it's the perfect amount. But before we get too sidetracked, I do want to open the floor for Liam to sort of, if there was any specific things that you were, that you really did like, like what that was. Um, I guess you were saying like, I guess the closer we got to the end of the movie, the more you were kind of on its side then because it was getting more into the mm. more heightened aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And there wasn't a whole lot I disliked. It's just like there wasn't the stuff that I that I wasn't liking. It, it's not that I disliked it. It's just that like I wasn't liking it, you know, like yeah. I was kind of neutral. It's on not it because bad. I it's just what it is. Yeah, like I, I really I wouldn't knock this movie at all because I can totally see that um, 
that so many people uh, would dig it um, if this is kind of, you know, if you're familiar with this type of storytelling and if this just appeals to your sensibilities, you know, I can I can totally see digging this. But for me, the stuff that that I really liked was, um, you know, this the scene where the the hooker gets swiped at the leg by the by the big leopard paw, like you guys said. I liked that stuff. I liked the transformation sequences. Oh, it's so um, so much. And and there there and there's just like a lot of really cool shots in this movie. You know, stylistically, oh. a lot of it. A lot of it looks really cool, um, but then when we when when we're uh, away from the this the stuff where um, things are intensifying and Paul Schrader is like really able to make stuff look grand and like sumptuous with all these colors. When we're just like in the zoo and and people are just talking, um, it it kind of just feels like a like some sort of like soap opera or something. And it even kind of like, it looks that way too. It's not, I didn't feel the visual flair from beginning to end. I just saw it pop up in moments um, where like it, it really needed to in order to, in order to heighten what's going on. And I, um, I appreciated that too, but it just, um, the, the stuff that I didn't like, it sort of, uh, it, it made it, it I'm going to remember this movie as, as a film with a lot of uh, bright spots, but also a lot of forgettable stuff, and so oh, I don't think it's going to stick with me all that much, you know. It's I think I think the weakest moments are kind of like when it tips into police procedural, you know. I think I think um, like all the bit like at the start where there's like this sort of stray cat that they're that they're chasing, all that sort of police procedural stuff is very weak, and it's also absent in the original in the original film. Uh, and it doesn't really do anything for me. They're like the police procedural bits, and I, I don't think it really needs that mm-hmm. the most forgettable parts of the movie. And but it, in the same time, like that is sort of like borrowed from one of Newton's uh, other movies called The Leopard Man, which is about this stray leopard going around New Mexico and like terrorizing people. And uh, yeah, and so. Uh, from that movie it's it's about like a press agent and like a nightclub dancer who accidentally let this like leopard go and it kills a bunch of people and and like the guilt it's actually a really unsettling scene but there's like uh they pretty much like have to like spend the whole movie trying to like get it back and the whole movie is from the perspective of these guilty people right Mm -hmm. this the this film uh takes that narrative as well like this the leopard gets out of the zoo and it's these people trying to get it back right so from that movie but at the same time I think it's just excess baggage that doesn't really need to be there at um, the same time Paul isn't in the original movie either yeah well that's what I was gonna stuff. that's what I was gonna get into because I think the reason that it's there and I think the reason why it works is because Schrader does do something that the original doesn't do which is um well he does it far more explicitly but there's a lot more of uh the humanizing of the narrative in that way like Paul exists Paul turns into a leopard. We see that it's not alluded to. Well, it is, and mm. then it's not, and then it's real. Um, and I think that, I think the reason that that works for me, and I definitely find the procedural stuff less memorable. But I think the yeah. reason I still like it um, is because it sort of helps give the movie room to really lay into its themes a bit more or at least use the leopard a lot more symbolically um as this manifestation of like an intimidation and like an aggressive desire that's like unsure of what even to do with itself and just lashes in that way 
And I think it's also kind of like a sexually potent sort of figure. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's absolutely it is, and not because it shows up in sex scenes, but there's Mm. just something very like alluring about the image of a big cat. So Mm -hmm. like seeing it um, in this hyperactive way sort of reasserts what the movie's about on a more fundamental level. I think that makes a lot of the procedural stuff work for me. I certainly think it gets a little bogged down. I think mostly with the reveal of like the basement cage is a bit much for me, but I will say the detective that they have um, oh. who is played by Frankie Faison is fucking awesome. Yeah, he's got that that scene's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's he's doing yeah. it in a very he's just super charismatic. He's in the new grudge, apparently. I've just looked that up. So look out for Frankie Faison in the grudge. Right. Um I, another thing that I that I love about this movie, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm just like jumping ahead. No, nah, please, it's the nature of the show. Just, because the original one is sort of like has like this sort of like dreary set quality that looks like it's from like a gothic novel or something. Yeah. But no backdrop. Um, like this one, they kind of tried it for like the southern gothic aesthetic, mm-hmm. and I absolutely love it. And I think the biggest successes of this movie, like it's successful for how it for how it looks in many reasons, but I think like that southern gothic switch was a real stroke of not yeah. only because it plays into Luton's earlier films. Um, but also just like there's I just think something the about the environment like, like i'll be curious to see how like liam feels about this because one of the things that i think makes this movie so potent as a viewing experience is its visuals even if that's understated in a lot of times and that's not explicitly mm-hmm. because um it's got this great neo-noir thing there's lots of long shadows and low light and um it's accented with um a camera that moves a lot and i think that that's a huge strength Uh, because it feels like um it keeps things moving not just visually but it helps keep the narrative feel continuous because there's a lot of tracking shots upstairs down sets of stairs a lot of stuff but one thing that i wanted to hone in on before going into that is um you can you can really almost like feel the humidity in the air in the cinematography for me and it it weighs the movie down with this sort of like intensity that I think goes with the color and it mm-hmm. makes things understated even when like a camera move it may be dramatic, but fills it with this really weird tension that I think leans in the movie's favor. And I want to see how Liam feels about the visuality of that, even if it is somewhat understated at times or if you don't think it's understated, whatever you got. Yeah, um, no, I'm with you. I think actually, I think saying that you feel the humidity is a great way to put it. I think that's a a great way to describe what's happening here when there's actually not a whole lot happening, you know, when we're out of those big sequences where there's so much color on the screen and and so much uh, like an expanse of space. Um, There is still kind of this feeling of... um, claustrophobia even in the zoo i felt like i wasn't in a zoo that's in like an open world i felt very confined by the movie and um and i think the way you're putting it now is making me feel that that was uh very intentional and um i felt that for sure i think the like this this old like sort of southern and the humidity it's kind of like definitely like it plays into sort of like the sexiness of the, of the film and oh, yeah. uh and like I said, there are very few interior sequences really of like 
but you like it, it still distinctly feels like it's in New Orleans because of that. And um, like the the zoo that's like it's so claustrophobic. It's so old, and it, uh, to me, I I really like the setting because it's sort of it sort of plays that sort of claustrophobia. Those animal cages have to yeah. be inhumane. Those are so fucking they're, small. Well, they're just like the ones in the original too. Like, I, that's what like I the noticed. They look the exact Central same. Park, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't have a huge opinion on where we start in terms of like plot wise. I'm content to hop around, but as we're sort of handling the more aesthetic elements, uh, I'm going to do something that. I think Mitch and I have been itching for, which is I want to talk about how like the music pairs with oh. that visual sensibility because Absolutely. something we've kind of danced around is um there are moments where there is a really pronounced um visual uh or rather flourish of cinematography from the movie and I think of when Arena's on the bus and uh, mm-hmm. it's showing like the cityscape around you on these really harsh angles and the French quarter. Yeah. yeah. The French quarter. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of really deliberate sort of panning and tracking of folks. Um, sometimes handheld other times not, but what these are often paired with is this really fucking killer. Awesome synth score. Well, mm. primarily from Marauder that for me really leans into that sort of, the uh what i would associate with like the erotic thriller angle of the movie because i feel like it adds such gravity and such um tension and apprehension to those moments like even if it's downright style sorry downright style yeah well because it's just it takes something so i'm thinking of um there's a couple moments of somebody just like walking up the stairs and you know Mm -hmm. it's well shot it's well lit it's got that sort of darkened shadowy look but the music can elevate it in such a way that really Mm -hmm. just like there's that really iconic for me like that like it's it's the motif it's the light motif of the whole soundtrack. Yeah, it, it appears in like yeah, every song, but every every single one. It yeah. can just send like tingles up your spine, even if you're looking at somebody walk up the stairs. And yeah, I think I, that it really shows in moments. I think near the end when Arena comes back and is like stripping while walking up the stairs, <laughs> and, yeah, like, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I love the, the autopsy. I love, the <laughs> I love. Oh yeah, fuck. <laughs> I love the sequence where um she's like just arrived in new orleans and it's kind of like walking around as a tourist and the, there's like the wet sort of sidewalk and that tremendous tracking shot that follows her and then all of a sudden it zooms out to show like this square like the big square like, yeah it's perfect yeah <laughs> and the the, the the score in that particular sequence is just incredible i will say the best track in the entire movie to the bridge next like the leopard dream which i'm sure we'll get into is like to the bridge yeah to the bridge that particular track goes so hard it's on my phone i love it so much yeah um liam what did you think about the music and how it sort of pairs with that because i think what we'll get into next too is how this movie's got like eight different genre sensibilities that inform this stuff but i want to know how you felt about this score that we are just fucking gushing about at you (laughs) Uh, I honestly didn't think much about it. Um, How either could way, you, which, which I think is kind of a is kind of a good sign because I'm I'm of the uh, opinion that if you don't think about the music of a movie as it's happening, then like it's doing its job. Um, 
so uh, whatever was there was working for me, you know, because there's been a lot of times on this podcast, Corey, that uh, you and I have <laughs> talked about the music because uh, it's the music's jumped bad. out to both of us as being completely awful. So, you yeah. know, so- I'm, not, I'm not someone who, who buys scores or anything like that. You know, that's another if I were to train that ability, I think I'd be able to pick it out a little better and talk more about it. But uh, whatever was there, you know, I dug and I liked uh, the closing theme. That's for yeah, sure. It's kick- so it worked for you, though, in the sense that like for you then it's more about you don't want the music to assert itself stylistically in such a way that it gets in the way and that if it can be a cohesive experience you're set yeah yeah cool um one thing i want to get into which is that we've we've talked about this movie having like five different genres basically Uh. um one of the things that we keep kind of returning to is this like erotic thriller idea um do you have any context for that off the top of your head, or am I putting you on the spot too hard? How, what do you mean by that? That's a broad question. Well, just because it it emerged of a particular moment very specifically, and then kind of went away. So I was just curious if you had any thoughts on like other examples of that genre to give people a sense of what we mean. Of like what, like steamy, like eighties yeah. erotica. Yeah, like oh, that kind sh- of like unique, like neo noir rebound, but it's got the like very explicit. Oh like, yeah, like body I mean, heat. I guess like. Yeah, like has that sort of like aesthetic from from that particular period, like you say, Body Heat, which is sort of another sort of like southern. Speaking well, of the it's... big chill, yeah, yeah, this sort of like sweaty, sexy sort of film. So what we can say though is, um, this movie sure is a lot of fucking in it. Can't say definitely, can't say it especially like considering that. like the the casualty that comes with that. There's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, um, so. I, I kind of want to put this to Liam because it was your first time seeing it. Um, was that was that stuff handled in the way you expected it to be handled? Like, how did you feel about this movie's like mobilization of sex? Which is a wild question to ask. <laughs> well, once I realized uh, like what the rules of these cat people are and and what was going down, I didn't think it was egregious at all. I actually thought it was pretty tasteful. Um, Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, you know, it's again, not like, like it's pornographic, uh, really, at any point. It's like shivers. This is not, you know, it's it's pretty, uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty uh, casual and respectful. And again, like it's pretty, it's pretty serious. You know, I've seen some uh, movie horror movies from the eighties where like people are like fucking, you know, and it's yeah. like gnarly. And this, this 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 really wasn't that. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's weirdly considering we're talking about like murderous like cat sex maniacs it's not but, like hellraiser kinky at all or anything like it's no, it's very no. regular well, ending, like where he's like she's like set me free that and, was yeah i think we'll the tying to... her up was kind of like just to keep it from getting out of hand when she turned well so he doesn't get killed so, i mean that yeah preservation more than anything but yeah but but doesn't the cat come out of her face anyway? Well, no, I, I, think it, I, think it, I think it comes out of like, we'll talk about this because the body horror is wild, but it's ambiguous. I think, I think it's like how I read it, which it doesn't make any sense, but because when he cuts Paul open, um, the human body is inside the leopard. Mm-hmm. It implies like a Vitroishka doll setup where there's a human body and a cat emerges from that. And within the cat is the human body again. I think so. Like I think the whole body pops it. off. It's I think deep we're just love. looking too deeply into like 80s practical effects. That's the whole you know? podcast, Mitch. 
Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do around here. Uh, um, yeah. I also like how um, there will be mid-transformation stuff, but it's not very explicit until the end of the movie. So there's a point where, like, Natasha Kinski, um, like, swipes through some bed sheets with her regular human hand. And it's just because we can't see it. So it just looks like she's just got, like, sharp nails. But then you eventually get the shot where, like, her hand literally, like, or is it Paul that they see at first, where it's, like, Wolverine-style claws, like, shoot out of the knuckles, and, like, the hand pops open, and there's a paw under it? Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, the autopsy sequence, we may as well just talk about that. So there's a point um, where Paul, after not sort of initially winning Arena over to this, like, um, incestuous leopard desert ideal um, tough sell yeah uh goes off and continues doing what he was doing which is like you know finding victims that can satiate this and have it where he will both have sex with and kill that person picking um, up morally loose women in, in, cem- in cemeteries Bill, poor that. billy didn't know it was gonna hit her dude and she was, makes me really and she was like a very like she was being good about it she was trying to like help along he wasn't having the best performance of his life and she yeah, got she mauled by a leopard for, for that so you know that's just too bad this is okay <laughs> but we got bogged down on the sex thing that's what happens when you make a podcast with a sex movie in it sometimes you get bogged down on the sex part um and while i think obviously the point that the movie or the ideas that the movie's trying to explore in terms of like intimacy desire um like one's appetite for sexuality which is a thing i alluded to earlier but there's something it's something i couldn't shake when there's a lot of like eating or like hunting or um like feeding a zoo animal like it feels like that's an analogy that you can make but Uh aside from its thematic preoccupations and how it handles that both visually i think in terms of locale but also cinematography and music creating an atmosphere wherein those ideas can make sense and be explored and feel like that sort of weird steamy like uncertainty is part of the ball game but there's yeah. also um a really i think great script in this movie that yeah. even when not dealing directly with its thematic preoccupations just has a really smart sense of dialogue and character interaction and i was wondering if anything from either of you jumped out script wise uh, definitely uh, it can, if i may please yeah of course mitch there's there's a uh, there's so we talked about script is so self-serious and so is the execution but there's also like definitely like an like comedy to it a zookeeper takes the cat lady for fish there's there's like a like a certain level of like i don't know like a self-awareness maybe a self-awareness or like a like a level of like comedy like a like subtle jabs like peppered all throughout the script that i think are kind of or malcolm mcdowell having a hairball like after he mucks that girl oh yeah he does huh he sure does (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's i don't know like there's there's... after playing with her hair oh my god i didn't notice that (laughs) yeah Uh, there's there's it's not like it's not there all the time but there's there's like elements of it it's such a bizarre movie yeah with like how it deploys and how subtle it can be at times yeah well like and there is like weird just like goofs in it like there's a point early on where um Paul as a leopard is trapped in the motel room still. Mm. And there's like a camera 
so they could see it because I guess the rooms have surveillance. And one of the cops like yeah. comes in and says, "Candid camera, let's hear it for voyeurism." Yeah, <laughs> which is and there's a lot of voyeurism in this movie, so I get why he's pointing oh, that out. There's there's definitely a preoccupation with um with cameras and lenses and like photography and what that yeah. how that plays into this kind of thing. But um, I'll I'll throw this over to Liam in a sec because I think he was the first person who pointed this out. But I actually don't know if I found the movie to be super self-serious or at least not self-serious in a way that muddies what it's trying to do. I thought that the fact that this movie could take such a heightened concept and still have what feels like real human people in it for the most part. Wow. <laughs> um, for the most part. I think some of these characters yeah. are obviously not, but I think like yeah. the dynamic feeling you get among Oliver and Alice for most of the movie, Oliver kind of goes a bit off at the end or like Oliver, Alice and Joe before that dude dies. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the seriousness and the, the straight lacedness with which it presents um, like sex hungry cat people, I feel like grounds it in its aesthetic in an important way. Because yeah. I think stylistically, if you're using this neo-noir look, the thing with noir in a lot of cases is like the heist in a noir can be heightened, but it's very, it's gritty, it's grounded. That's kind of the idea. And I think that even with the color, you get a lot of like a very sickly, like fluorescent green light that sort of brings you back down to reality. And I mm-hmm. think that in terms of how people talk about what's happening and experience what's happening, um, even if you think like when Alice goes for a swim and thinks Arena has been following her, which she has, but like, mm-hmm. you know, just presenting that as not silly, I think does the movie a lot of favors because within that sort of aesthetic idea, it doesn't feel equipped to like handle being any sillier than it is. But I know Liam had mentioned that a little bit earlier. So I was wondering how you felt about like the tone in the movie. Yeah, I guess, um, <laughs> I guess I was feeling it was a bit more incongruent, and that might just come from um, just, like, not having an immediate attraction to uh, these actors. Um, Because we've we've talked about this before, (laughs) that, like, some actors I'm just drawn to, right? And some I'm not. And I guess uh, the dad from Home Alone was never a a dude. (laughs) was was never a sex icon (laughs) for you? Yeah. And, um... Yeah, yeah, and I like I was I was much more interested in um, Malcolm McDowell, and even then, that's just because um, he's got those uh, big really, eyes. He's, he, he's got big eyes, and he's just uh, he's a more interesting character. But I could have used someone else uh, like him in John Hurd's role, just to someone that I could latch onto a bit more because I thought he was just kind of a of a milk toast dude and um when it comes to the fantastic elements being grounded by these more regular people you know I've seen movies like that where that sort of thing has really really worked for me and so I'm not opposed to the concept and I'm not I'm not saying if you have like a create uh, like a B movie premise you've really got to go balls to the wall and like make it a David Cronenberg movie or something but I guess they're just in this particular case um I, I didn't I didn't find that there was enough to make me feel invested when that crazy stuff wasn't happening, you know? Right. Yeah, and he's he's just not a very good everyman. He's kind of a weak he's a weak everyman, you know? I, I 
he's, he, he's almost he's so like much one of my biggest problems with the movie i think he's almost uh, like sorry yeah. so much of an oh, everyman that like it's a bit much like yeah. he's so like regular guy but he's also got mm-hmm. very like extraordinary things that he does like not everybody's a zoo curator that's a weird everyman job for your everyman to have true um so it, it is i guess kind of incongruent um i i kind mm. of wish alice had more to do i think that you could have increased her mm. role a bit and it might have picked up slack from that because i think um annette o'toole is fucking awesome in that yeah and, and that character's got like, a lot of spunk and like a very felt sense of presence and like has fun and like likes her job and like enjoys mm-hmm. being around people and you can feel that and john her definitely does kind of flatten by comparison to the, her and i think to kinski too yeah oh definitely to i think kinski is is a much more interesting actor and i don't think he can i don't think he can keep up with it with louis paired i don't i don't think he does nearly as well i think kinski's performance is so like is so feline and so like unusual she embodies it um, and i suppose yeah. they both do like her and malcolm mcdowell both because they have to like there is literally a point where malcolm mcdowell jumps through a window and in response Nat- mm-hmm. nastasia kinski like curls mm-hmm. up like a cat and like hisses and yeah. then she like she like vaults out of a window to avoid yeah. being like assaulted and then he jumps out of a window as a cat all like, that jumping stuff was shot in reverse actually i don't know if you know whole, that, how like, the fuck did they do that in reverse oh well like jumping on like ledges and stuff right to make it look like as though he's jumping up they have him like crouch and yeah, then jump because i'm picturing when um arena yeah. like flips over the bar though <laughs> Oh, How did they that do one. that? <laughs> I don't know about that one, but like oh, the basic, okay. most of the, the basic jumping. stuff of like the vaulting is, yeah. is shot in reverse in that movie. Yeah. And I do think you have a point. I think, um, I think Nastasia Kinski was like perfectly cast. Mm. I think there's just something like cat-like about her face. She's she's absolutely gorgeous in that movie, and I think it's also worth saying Klaus Kinski. Um, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if we have the time to get fully into the complex narrative that is Klaus Kinski, but and his relationship with his. Yeah, because yeah. it's real fucking messy and bad. It's pretty fucked up, but um, yeah, I mean, she's she's tremendous in that film. She's uh, she's Catholic. she does something that I don't think anyone else in the movie is able to do. I also think it's because they're not really given the room to do it. I think they try to do it with John Hurd and it fails, which is that at a certain point this movie takes a turn, right, narratively, and it's the point where, um, first of all, I want to point out something visually. Uh, Arena wants to leave because she realized that like she can't have this relationship with Oliver. She's stuck. Like it won't work, and she wants to remove herself from the situation initially. And she takes a train, and the transition they use from train to her being in the uh, the station is her like asleep in the chair, and yeah. then she like rouses, and um, it then fades the background out from the train to her standing. And then Paul appears in the station and they go into the, the leopard tree dream. And, oh, it's um, like the most sumptuous seven minutes of 1987. It's and um it like track it's a tracking shot that follows her like through the station. It's beautiful. It's incredible. But yeah. what that realization gives her a chance to do is do a complete character 180. I think mm. she becomes a lot more confident and a lot more sure of herself and a lot more fucking sinister. Especially, I think, with the jogging and 
you know, tracking down Alice and all of that, but she's able to embody yeah. that in the way she talks, in the way she's standing, in the way she moves, in the way she's just being such like a little shit when she's like, oh, like I wasn't following you. I was looking for like all this shit. And it's just like, it's, it's so intimidating and yeah. it's embodying that like weird understated power of the leopard in that way yeah. in the way that she's and presenting that's sort of just like general cattiness cat- yeah it's cattiness. both it, it's certainly it's a power and it's also like a snideness yeah. but i think yes. i think they try to do that with john hurd when he becomes like they give you a moment where they where you think he's just gonna kill her and he yeah. just doesn't and he's got like a stern look in his face but it never like it never fully pivots mm-hmm. so um i think she runs away with the movie there's a bit at the end of that sequence that I think is my favorite nod to the original okay. film after that sort of jogging sequence. Please. But the sequence is interrupted. You guys remember how, how loudly that street yes. cuts it off? Yeah, the first that's, street car. <laughs> that's to like the original film. And Val Luton was famous for this. And then you definitely know what a Luton bus is because like the original film, it's not a streetcar, it's a bus. But bus became famous and, and synonymous with like a jump scare, like a sound and sight scare. They would say, look out for the next Luton bus in this movie because of Val. And it was sort of like, it became like a fashionable thing in, in films of the days because jump scares were like relatively new. And instead of calling them Luton buses. And to me, I just can't fathom the idea of people being bored to a jump scare, just being like, I can't wait to have a, a, one of those. Yeah. But, or, or a jump scare being a, an unfamiliar idea. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like imagine going to a horror movie and being a jump scare yeah. being like, well, what a novel trick they've pulled. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you got me good with that oh, bus. You got me, uh, Mr. Paranormal Activity 4 or whatever the fuck. Yeah. I don't know. But that yeah. sort of is a really helpful segue because, you know, the original Cat People is a horror movie. Like it operates mm-hmm. on that level with intent. I think this one's a lot more complicated but it certainly has aspects and um i was wondering how i'll throw it to liam for the starters because you know um you're much more i think vested than me at least in like horror as a genre for a longer period of time and how this movie works as a piece of tension or like body horror however it works on that level for you or if it didn't i would say it 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 works as a body horror more than anything I didn't um I didn't feel a whole lot of tension. There were there was some suspense in uh in those chase sequences near the end with uh Alice. Um but but the most effective stuff I found was the body horror stuff. The uh the masses of like leftover goop on the ground and the film um that's been left over from these transformations. Um a lot of the gore works really well, you know, when uh Homie gets his arm ripped off, yeah, and of it takes a have. while too. It's yeah, Joe that, gets his dude. arm ripped off. That was that was that was heavy, man. It's so stylish with like, the slow mo blood, the blood like the being floor, washed the into the color, drain. Yeah, well, the color palette of that shot's incredible. Well, and the color palette works so well. I think. Sorry, Liam. I don't mean to interject with you. You were in the middle <laughs> of something, but um, there's something that's so smart and it's so basic, but about like the pristineness of the floor and her shoes yeah. being covered in the blood both as like a literal visual metaphor of violence, but like as metaphor to like this weird uncertainty and this desire that's boiling underneath and not being sure what to do with it. And like the consequences of that bearing themselves. 
yeah totally yeah she's literally in white like it's not understated at all but sorry liam please (laughs) yeah no 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 problem uh this is this is stuff i like about the movie you know so i don't want to just steamroll past it i want to hear what you guys think um yeah i love i loved that sequence um and some of the transformation stuff we got near the end where we really get to see uh uh the cat people in uh Mm. in full view you know it makes me it makes me think oh hey have i is this the first time i'm seeing the cat in full view you know and it's not because this movie is actually um it kind of lets you in on what's going on pretty early but i found that the the effects never got old we we always saw um the transformation from like a different perspective or we saw some new facet of of the cat that we hadn't seen before you know maybe what they leave behind or some of the violence they inflict that i found the horror elements never got old and they Mm -hmm. they felt fresh the whole way through yeah yeah but if you're um, going like this isn't the one like this it's not as scary no i don't think particularly it's got some it's got some thrills and it's got some like but it's not outrageousness and 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 but it's i think it's i think it's more of just like a like a style piece i feel like if you're looking for anything else really you're not going to find it i did write a paper about it in (laughs) in in third or fourth year about no third year i think about like it's reflection of of like sexuality but because it's it's pretty much got like you know very interesting with how how it deals with like gender and and sex and american sex but i think another thing that could be construed as a horror sequence i don't think it is but i want an excuse to talk about it because i feel like mitch when we watched this the first time this is not something that came up a lot when we talked about it um Mm. but there's a detour in the middle of the movie where they go out into the country and he has this like cabin on a dock oliver does oliver and arena go out there and um there's a there's a bit where um arena sneaks out in the middle of the night and under the light of a full moon like strips Mm. naked and um you get cuts into like cat vision and it's very alien and it's very alienating because it's it's oddly psychedelic the and sound design is superb. The sound design is superb. superb. And um, it's like fading through all these colors and she's like stalking animals and sort of moving, like her movement gradually changes and she like hunts this rabbit um, and devours it and then uh, returns home. Paul, not Paul, Oliver wakes up and flicks on a lamp and sees her like covered in blood and um she's like don't look at me and like it cuts but i love that part yeah it's so great just because it feels like such it feels like a departure from everything else and simultaneously doesn't because it's Mm -hmm. got such a unique flair to the sequence but Mm -hmm. it it just it it gets the idea across and i think one of the things it gets across well is how strange that experience would be for the person having it (laughs) And, yeah. and understand and it underlines how complicated working through those feelings could be and obviously that can be extrapolated into situations in regular people's lives that aren't eating mm-hmm. rabbits maybe but but it's it's this idea that this forbidden love is kind of like a source of their of the horror yeah um and i think that that's and like whether part- somebody can like hold themselves back or not yeah and that, like you know i think that that's she's almost like a, it's like a ticking time bomb there 
like she doesn't you know get too involved or else she's gonna devour her friend and that's kind of like a source of the tension as well it's just like is she gonna is she gonna transform and kill this like man the The narrative drive of the movie is is what arena will do with the information she gradually learns like that's what you're concerned about i think is like is she gonna flip and if she is when if when how like wondering how that's gonna go is is what i think drives the tension because you're never totally sure even though she spends so much time basically telling paul to fuck off mm-hmm. like you're still like eh, i don't know like maybe you will though <laughs> is there anything else that jumped out that you want to either of you want to make sure that we like definitely hit that's of like major significance well what'd you guys think of the ending uh, <laughs> go ahead it's a weird ending <laughs> yeah um there's something that makes me very uncomfortable about it that i just really don't yeah. like there's something because i know that like she is ultimately like asking for that as an alternative which is like look if you're not going to kill me um and i don't want to kill you have sex with me again i'll turn into a cat and then he keeps her in the zoo and he like hands her some extra food and there's like nuzzling from her which i will say really quick there is nuzzling between paul and arena throughout the film while there's still people it's very funny <laughs> but oh, yeah that, that... <laughs> um something about it i think because the movie is so explicitly about sexuality and like sexual norm and intimacy and like you're saying to gender and how those things operate that it's just it's such um i don't think the the embodiment of the leopard that is now arena like loses its sense of power or right myth, it's just myth, a mysticism creature or, or in zoo. yeah it doesn't lose that but i think by making it a subservient creature in a zoo to the man is very mm-hmm. like traditional and says it's leaning on a very specific brand of gender norms that I think obviously emerges in the fifties. You get a very classic era of domesticity off of the Victorian model of domesticity that I yeah, think and reemerges. Yeah. And it reemerges the, in the eighties yeah. when you get your sort of like neoconservative, you get your Reagan. I know this, I think this is before Reagan, but it's that same kind of idea Yeah, that, and it's playing with yeah. that in a way that where so much of the rest of the movie feels complicated the ending is dis- it feels weirdly uncomplicated only because despite the fact that the leopard maintains its on-screen presence you can't help but feel like okay all you've done is lock her in a cage now and i don't know if the movie's trying to make a point about the consequences of unchecked actions particularly in terms of intimacy like it, you could talk about it in a lot of ways but i i thought it made me kind of it feels weird yeah, I definitely agree. That was kind of like the crux of my paper was talking about traditional values and in, in, in cat people. Yeah, it refers it in a lot of weird ways. Like definitely, yeah. Uh, what about you, Liam? What'd you think about that? Well, I don't remember if I predicted the ending, but it's definitely um, it's definitely like a suitable ending. Like I can't, I can't really think of another way this movie would end. You know, like right after John Hurd ties her to the bed, like it's pretty clear that. Uh, she's going to be at his whim and uh yeah, she's going to really be the one put in the cage. That's a really good point. Well, the you original know, it, has a very different 
And is the is his does the original have a different ending because the rest of the movie is so different, or does well, it pivot at the yes end? John Hurt's no. character is like an advertising executive in New York City, so uh, like he's not a zookeeper to lock her in the zoo. Like it has a, it's totally yeah. It's, it's like an apples and orange it, compa- but... uh, comparison almost. But yeah. um, did you see it coming then, Liam? Like you figured that's where it was going. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't, I don't remember like you know pointing to the bleachers and calling it as it happened. But also, I don't remember being surprised at all. Um, it seems like like this because the movie is kind of a lot more. Um, it's uh, it's a somber piece and it's it's very slow. I, I wasn't expecting it to end on um, like a tales from the crypt type. Yeah, like it's very goosebumps ending, ending. You know. Um, And I think what's weird about that for me as someone who's not hugely familiar with the rest of Schrader's discography, but I'm going to take or filmography, but I'm going to take a swing here anyway, is that a lot of his other movies don't feel conservative in that way. I know a lot of them grapple with the brand of Catholicism and Christianity, perhaps most recently, but like things like hardcore and American gigolo and even taxi driver, like feel not like a refutation of those things, um, those ideals, but to intentionally bring to light an alternative to those. So for this to end on a very traditional note feels odd. But Mitch, you've seen more. Maybe you have a thing on that. I don't know. I I, I think the the traditional and sort of like those gender norms. I I think they're kind of echoed in the in the '40s film as well. Right. Oh, totally. Then, yeah. Sort of Freudian tea. Uh, and I don't think American Gigolo is or or hardcore either. There, I would say like hardcore is maybe more about like a like the degradation of those values because it's about like a Calvinist man looking for his father. Incidentally, uh, Paul Schrader was was like a very devout Calvinist. So, um, but he kind of had uh, like a you know from those values but his parents actually refused to watch all of his movies i i mean that's not a huge surprise <laughs> yeah because they're all like they're all i think they saw hardcore because it's actually set I grew up in and then they never watched another one because well, um, that would be a shock to the system i think too yeah most devout yeah. religious people like calvinists are not like yeah they're all very over sex kind of films and um i think i think like the sexual values of his other films kind of look negatively towards those values, especially if you watch something like autofocus. Right. Um, yeah. So what I think is the, the, the base material than anything and the, the, the Freudian undertones. Yeah. And um, at the risk of like reading too far into it, cause I don't know if I'm prepared to fully make a critique here, but mm-hmm. another thing that I noticed that is echoed in the forties movement is also present here and is a very like, specific brand of american traditionalism rooted in something shitty is um all the black people are in service roles oh Um, yeah they're all like taxi drivers taxi drivers the detective it's a public service but it's service nonetheless in a way he's perhaps he's perhaps one of the most agency but famale is also a big thing and that sort of goes into how um we see the cult in the beginning as being or seeming to be um african or potentially but mm-hmm. rather like mid-eastern kind of thing except yeah. for the stand-in for presumably arena impal's ancestor who was white yeah. so that's got a weird kind of vibe to it as well i'm not prepared yeah. to fully unpack that but it's something i noticed 
Mm-hmm. And in in the original film, they say that uh, Irena is from Serbia. I right. think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when they they don't kind of explain it, but Famale. Um, for all intents and purposes, is kind of like a nod to I Walked with a Zombie, like a lot of characters. Like, okay. Um, the sort of like uh, like voodoo kind of. It's a, it's a movie about voodoo in um, in the in the Indies. Yeah, and that actress uh, Ruby D is really good as Fomale. She's great. Oh, she's great. She's great. <laughs> but again, she kind of like her role. She's, she's embodying like. what feels to me like a pretty pronounced kind of stereotype almost. Like, yeah, just sort of like this New Orleans kind of yeah, Creole feels very, flavor that doesn't yeah yeah it it jives weird especially next to Paul like it's a very weird yeah, dynamic definitely. that like I don't know how those two people live together but definitely I think that there there's a way that you can mine this movie for its like reactionary values in a way that mm-hmm. is weirdly dissonant mm-hmm. with the rest of his movies but. Um, yeah. I don't know if a podcast that talked about an Airbud movie is maybe the place to do that. Yeah, it's um, kind of like Tennessee Williams. I don't know. Yeah, um, but what I do want to throw out there, if there's nothing that we've missed of like major importance, is if um, there's a particular sequence that either of you really dug that we haven't talked about yet that you want to shout out. <laughs> nothing for me. We didn't. We didn't really talk about the autopsy shit. Well, we kind of did. We, that's, we talked about it a bit with the body horror stuff. The effect is wild, and also I think the body melts, which is fucking yeah. crazy. Yeah. Uh, let me just look at my notes. Mine is probably the pool. We talked about it a bit, but yeah. just the look of the pool, um, and the way the light glimmers off the water, especially when the lights go out. And there is a recurring shade of green, and I didn't watch this closely enough. I didn't make that correlation enough in my mind to nail down what it is symbolically getting at. But um, it's sometimes like an almost fluorescent light that is standing in for the green. But when the lights go out in the pool, you see it in the church. The lights go out in the pool. You see it in the window. Um, It looks a lot like the green that is in the Hitchcock movie Rope. It's the same (laughs) shade. The green Um, fluorescent light. yeah, Yeah, and it shows up. Um, in like otherwise stylistically dark moments, I think there's a point where Irina comes back into Oliver's house and she's like coming up the stairs and it's lit in that green. And that was mm-hmm. just such a bold color choice for your like fill light mm-hmm. for those like spots and screen that I just, I thought that was cool. And I think the way the whole pool sequence works out in much the way that the pool sequence in Suspiria is great looking like yeah. it looks great here too. And it looks great in the original as well. Um, oh, yeah, it does. I forgot that that was even... I mean, of yeah. course it is, because it's awesome in the original, but like... Yeah. I mean, Liam, you won't be able to answer this, but Corey, do you prefer this one or the original? Um, I think I prefer... Uh, as the pool scene or as the movie? The whole movie. I think I prefer this one. It might be because I saw it first. I think it leans into more stylistic things that I'm familiar with, and I think that helps it a lot, because there's more stuff that I just like implicitly. But I think yeah. the 40s one is far better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Oh. Like when you consider what that movie could have been in different hands, yeah. like you'd never have heard about it again. Yeah. But a lot of the time when I'm watching this movie, I just feel like, especially I, I recently watched the old, at a 73 minute runtime, it's just it's like so there's tight. no time. This movie the, isn't as yeah. tight at all. It's got a lot of bad stuff that I would cut. A lot of shit that, that I don't really... I think you could make this 90 minutes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I like this movie for like its music video. 
and then there's like lots of stuff where I'm just like, uh, like we don't need this, we don't need that. Yeah, well, we especially with the note that it starts on, like that set, that leopard tree dream set, is oh, so superb. fucking cool, and it's very Mishima, like that oh, set much. dressing sensibility and how it feels, mm. like otherworldly and perfectly worldly, and it has like mm. this weird visual flair. It comes up later for sure, but um, yeah. later in his filmography, I mean, but. It's a weird note for it to start on that for then, like Liam is saying, become very somber, become very mm. grounded, become very, very earthly. Yeah. And those those aesthetics are also borrowed from, like, I walked with a zombie, like sure. the whole idea of tying someone to a tree. And yeah, so I, I totally I totally agree that it, it, it has things, but then it dips into just like sheer mundanity, like in some parts. That yeah. I, and know, I think and, the mundanity, and, I'm sure, was part of the point, but I don't know if it lands oh. in the same way. But I mean, like, also, like the like, just what you have going on. I feel like there's a lot of the film that maybe even comes up comes across as being like pedantic. Like, there's there's with, with Paul just being like, because I mean, he explains everything during the leopard tree dream, and then he explains it again during yeah. like a rant. With there's the, a voiceover that's completely unnecessary. I wish it were yeah. cut. I wish the leopard tree dream had no dialogue. Same, like long ago, our ancestors. Saw- yeah, well, because he had explained it at the dinner already. And that's in the first like ten minutes of the movie, and this is yeah. in the last thirty, and he does it again. Um, yeah. And I think because the music is so strong and makes enough of a point on its own that I would have loved to see that without yeah. the dialogue. And I love his delivery. I mean, he's a great actor. He's got a great delivery. But, I think he yeah. he does the he works. I think what he's doing doesn't like what he's made to do doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Uh, I also think that visual looks great on a poster. This movie has awesome posters. Oh, of um, course. Yeah. It's got like uh, Nastasia Kinski like in the rain, half of her face with a cat eye, and then like the leopard tree dream in the the word art and like logo for this movie rules. Yeah. No, no rubber boots. <laughs> no rubber boots, dude. Oh my god. Do you want to tell that story or do you? Oh, not? sure, sure, sure. So I, I used to work in sales, and one of my uh, one of the guys, older guy who I worked with, I used to tell him, like all the movies I was watching because he. And I, I told him that I that I watched this movie, and he he hadn't seen this film like since the eighties. And he turns to me with the biggest grin on his face, and he just or two words, rubber boots. <laughs> and uh, for anybody who has seen it, uh, he's referring to something um, where they're like fishing in a swamp. And they've got these giant fucking fishing rubber boots on. But um, yeah. Kinski's in these like shorts. And there's a very gratuitous shot <laughs> yeah. of, of yeah. her bending over. Yeah, no, that's exactly the dirty old man. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Oh, what a guy. It's just so funny. I, I like had like a, I broke down like <laughs> laughing. Tears. And this is a weird Since, thing. It's like 1982. Yeah, were you like at work like in a public place or like? Oh yeah, but like there was nobody. There was, there was nobody, nobody around. Okay. Yeah, we we're just shooting that. Um, cool. Yeah. That's that's so funny. But um, I guess uh, Liam, I'll toss it to you first. If you've got like wrap up thoughts, closing thoughts for um, for cat people, what'd you think? What's your overall takeaway here? Uh, I think my overall takeaway is that um. There's good stuff here, but it could certainly be half an hour shorter, you know. Um, if, if you were to ask me if I like Cat People 82 or the one from the 40s better, I think I would just default to the one from the 40s because it's so short, you know. And this this uh, 
this premise seems like it it's more suited to a shorter film because this is this kind of is the sort of um, remake or you know uh, inspiration piece you know if 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 we're not going to go as far to call it a remake and just say that it was a reimagining it 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 seems like um, the kind of reimagining that's like okay we need to make this like a bit wider and um do a bit more with it and so we're gonna put half hour extra stuff into it and it's just uh um though i haven't seen she's the original, gonna work at a gift shop now yeah though i haven't seen the original i would say there's about half hour uh like too much stuff here you know um and so uh while it's certainly it's it's not a bad movie and it's not one that i dislike it's it's not one that i think is gonna stick with me and so um if you're looking to watch this movie and you haven't seen it yet, I would, I would, I would uh, listen to Corey or Mitch a bit more and see if you're more in line with their sensibilities because uh, there's there's a lot of stuff to like here and there's a lot of stuff here that you might like more than I did, you know. But this one was just, uh, it was a pleasant watch, but but I don't know if I'll ever uh, go back to it. Cool. What about you, Mitch? <laughs> I think I think I agree. I think, and in some respects, uh, if you love visually striking movies, Cat People's Your Bag. I think it's like one of the best looking movies of the '80s. I think I've already said that, but uh, I agree that there's like a lot of fat. And when it's when it's really good, like there's like there's like a seven minutes span in that movie that's like just incredible. Like it's like I, I that that whole just with how it looks and how the whole movie functions. When it's functioning really really well, it's great. But when it's not, it's just sort of mundane. And there's a lot of sitting around. There's looking at my phone. So I would say, I would honestly say, watch the original. It's only 73 minutes. What have you got to lose? But like, I would still highly recommend this movie because it's just such a bizarre and fun movie. Yeah. From the 80s. Yeah. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think I would still, I might still recommend this one first, but I think it's just because it's like so up my alley that like, sure. Um, but uh, I definitely think that you could come into this we talked a lot we dove a lot into the themes and the things that inform this movie and there's a lot to dig into there and i think it's worthy of that kind of deeper analysis but if you want to come to this movie as a mood piece i think you'll be very well served and i think that you will get a little bit bogged down and it'll lose a bit of um motion in certain moments but it's just such a thing to sort of bask in and like i said you know you can feel the humidity you the long shadows it's so striking like there's just so much to get lost in that even if you don't want to like really critically go for it i think you'll still have a lot to love but i would also highly recommend um the original for the same reasons you know it's so tight it's so well crafted and well conceived that like there's no reason not to and um with that i think we might be done here so um Unless I'm wrong, but I'm going to start the outro yeah. anyway, you nerds. Um, I'd like to thank you both for having me, by the oh, way. Of course, it thank you so much for coming on. Wonderful chat. This is the smartest, no this, is the smartest yeah. this show has ever sounded. Wow. We got real academic up in here. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> wow. I think uh, I think you, you definitely brought a bit of that Ben Mankiewicz class that we were lacking. And um, look forward to having <laughs> you on again already. <laughs> And uh, I think that'll be a super good time. We'll have to make you watch something terrible. Um, uh, yeah, well, you know, you can't win them all, bud. We already liked this movie. <laughs> um, you guys want to revisit Black Christmas 2019? Yeah, Mitch, oh, do you want to watch Black I, Christmas with us? I hate that. Actually, it would be like 
being on that podcast would be scarier than Black Christmas. Like this is a very this know. is a Black Christmas 2019 respect zone. So you would definitely be a little out of your element. Yeah. Um, Count me out. But I think with that out of the way, we'll have to come up with something for you later. Uh, thank you, everybody, once again for listening to this episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, all one word. On Anchor, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and all kinds of other podcast services as they made another one. You can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and whether or not you think John Hurd is more or less interesting than your dad. We'll do our best to answer everyone who reaches out. Uh, Liam, where can people find you? You guys can find my film writing alter ego Graham the Haunted Marshmallow on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham the Mallow. And Mitch, do you have anything you want to plug? And where can people find you? Um, I don't know. Do you have a Letterboxd or like an Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> and um, well, if Mitch, if you don't have anything, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Mr. Corey Price. And with that out of the way. Um, we would like to thank you again, and you can catch us here next time for more. They made another one. Before you end, oh, okay. can I just plug my? I'll plug myself as well. Yes, please. Please. <laughs> Sorry. No, please plug. You can just. What are you plugging? Instagram at Mitch underscore Kadrowski. That's K E D as in David, R O S as in Sam, K Y. That sounded rehearsed. I bet you have to spell that a lot. Oh, it's a good Polish last name. It happens. Yeah. Well. Now that we've got the plugs out of the way, thanks again, everybody. Can't say that wasn't a movie.